This episode is supported by Zencaster. It's an all-in-one podcast production suite, and it gives you studio-quality audio and video from home without needing all of the technical know-how. I switched to Zencaster for recording my interviews a few months ago, and I have been so impressed. It records each person locally, so even if the internet wobbles, you won't miss a beat. Learn more and save 30% on your first three months at zencaster.com pricing and enter the code GIRLBONERRADIO. What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. But then she was like, oh, my God, I didn't know. And I was like, I haven't told anybody but you because we're having this conversation and you're open to hearing it. But I'm giving you an example of how ridiculous is it that our progressive family, I can't even come out to them. Mm. Me as a huge progressive live in your truth person, yeah. you know, I, I still like, isn't that ridiculous? But if I'd seen more of ourselves on screen and if my family had seen more of it, I would have been more comfortable too. Carolina Hoyos is an Afro-Indigenous actor, playwright, director, songwriter, and voice artist. She joined me in the studio back in 2019 for a conversation about her sexual empowerment journey, common myths about demisexuality and bisexuality, and more. We also touched on the play we were in together years ago, which is how we met. Today, I'm excited to re-release much of that conversation in my former straight interview style, a bit of a throwback, plus a special invite to check out Carolina's latest work. Thank you so much for being here, Carolina. Thank you for having me. It's so good to see you. So we met in a play we were in, <laughs> yes. which feels like a lifetime ago. It was. <laughs> we, we were playing different women that the, the director-writer had dated. Mm -hmm. What yeah. do you recall from that experience most? Oh, you know what? It was actually my first experience being in a production with mostly women. And it was, it was a different experience to me because I grew up a tomboy. So it was, at first it was like, what is happening? But it was beautiful because I got to bond with everyone. And I don't know if you remember Sutera. She wasn't actually in the play, but she was helping us. And I remember I needed to put my hair kind of up a little bit. I had bobby pins and I had like 15 bobby pins <laughs> trying to put my hair up. And she was like, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. This is wrong. She takes them all out. And she's like, you just need two. <laughs> and you just need to do a little X with them. So she helped me. And I was like, thank you, mommy. Aww. I felt like, you know, I had a sister that was kind of teaching me the ropes. And I so was like, a more nurturing atmosphere and collaborative. Yes. I felt like we had a really good vibe. For the most part, I thought we all got along well. And it was a really emotional piece. It was heavy. It was yeah. definitely heavy. And I think, I think the writer-director really honored that the many colors of a woman and what we go through. 
And I know in that version, he was in the play, but in, in the following versions, because he kept developing it, he wasn't in the play because the play really wasn't about him. It wasn't. No. Yeah. yeah. And I, I do think that that was probably a smart decision. It felt to me like it was a healing process for him to write, which I understand yes. as a writer. It's so cathartic. Mm-hmm. And it grew and blossomed. And it's interesting because I actually sang in it, but yes, you didn't. I did and you're not. a professional singer. <laughs> Were you sitting there going, like, why are they singing? (laughs) No, I loved being kind of anonymous because I'd spent so many years in New York. I performed with a a few different people, but with a band that I was in for four years. And I went through, like, the gamut with the label system. I had a lawyer. I had all that stuff happening and doing showcases. And then there was, like, the chance that I was getting to go solo, to have a career, to have a real career. And and I was was stubborn. I was was like, I want to be in a band. I don't want that. And then that came back to bite me anyway, because once I moved to L.A., then then that band kind of resented me for moving. And it was like, I have to move here for my health. New York wasn't good for me. You know, like health comes first. I can't just be about career. Yeah. You know, if, if I don't have good health, I can't go for career. It's not going to fulfill me. I don't think that anybody who approaches careers in the arts from the artist standpoint can. Yeah. Because artistry requires so much nurturing. There's this... I think, false belief that you have to be tortured all the time to be an artist. Yes, and I do not agree with that. Yeah. You can go from that and have inspiration from that, but it's so important to heal from it, to really be able to communicate and help others because otherwise you're wallowing and you're like, come be, what is it? Misery loves company. Come be miserable with me. Right, which isn't really fun. No. (laughs) Totally. No. So I actually don't know a lot about your upbringing. Uh, I'm curious what you learned about sex and sexuality growing up. I know you grew up in the South. Yes, I grew up in the South. I'm a recovering Catholic. So um, everything was, you know, taboo. Like private schools? And- my sister went to private school. My, my, both my parents were in private. Well, they were in boarding school, Catholic boarding schools. But they weren't that strict. I want to say my family is really progressive. But still, just growing up in a Latino household, it's like that kind of overbearing sense of guilt. One set of cousins, one aunt is particularly religious. I had a picture once when I had my bare back showing, but it looked like a kind of jeans ad. And they were just so offended. They were like, we don't need to see that. And it was like, um, my fiance took that picture. He's in the picture with me. It wasn't like a, a, even a photo shoot. It wasn't like I was doing that on a professional thing. Wow. There was a shoot between us and we made it into a flyer to promote uh, our first show, actually, together for a photography exhibit. So it was such a beautiful photograph that we were like, we need to use this. It's art. Yeah. You know, but they saw it as sexual and demonic, (laughs) whatever. Oh, my goodness. So growing up, it was, like, still kind of a struggle of, like, you know, what's right, what's wrong. Everything was limited. But I had experiences early on, and my mother was so great because as soon as I told her, she was like, okay, we're getting you on birth control. (laughs) Might as well. I'm not going to, you know... I'm not going to be able to tell you, no, don't do that. You know, she knows. That's amazing because it sounds like you were kind of entrenched in the ideas for purity culture, right? Yeah. And it sounds like your mom probably had learned, I think so many people who pay it forward in a positive way, they learned the hard way. Like, she had to experience that same kind of shaming and she didn't want you to have that. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. And I mean, you know, I'm sure it's because times have changed, but she was a late bloomer in terms of having children. She didn't have me till she was 41. And I'm, I'm the youngest. So she had her first child when she was 32, 33. 
But her mother had her when she was like 19 or 18 or something. So I think, you know, obviously over centuries and generations, times have changed, but she's just one step removed from a mother who had her pretty young. So I think it was when I was 14, I was like, Mom, I did it. <laughs> She's like, let's go get you on birth control. That's also awesome yeah. that you could go to her and say that. Yeah, yeah. So that was a nice thing. I knew I had that comfort and it was like, this is, you know, something I don't know anything about. And in schools, it still isn't great trying to teach sex education and, and prevention. Abstinence is not going to work. I know. It's not going to work. We all know this. I mean, <laughs> anecdotally, work. I mean, no one's ever surprised by the studies, but they do lots of studies. Yeah. And the more you teach abstinence, the more people have STIs and have less safe sex and the more unplanned pregnancy. I mean, it's so evident. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I it know. doesn't it doesn't work. So that's that's amazing that she did that. I loved the piece that you wrote for Free to Love called I Identify as Two-Spirit. Yes. And you shared that you're bisexual, demisexual. Given that you had limited access, as so many of us do, to sex education, mm -hmm. and that particular identity is even now still not talked about very much right? And in kind of broad culture, when did you start to kind of explore what your sexual identity was that it wasn't necessarily this Catholic idea of yeah. heteronormativity? Well, as a young girl, I knew I was attracted to both sexes. And there was, you know, experimentation as a young, young girl. And, and as I got older, it, again, like the Catholic thing was I didn't see that represented anywhere in the media. And I was like trying to, you know, kind of shove it away. And it kept coming up. And by the time I was 14 or 15, I remember I, I had taken a nap on my friend's couch, and then this girl that would come over, she was about my age, she would always flirt with me. And I was, and at this point, I was like, ooh, I don't know what to do. It's, this is scary. I don't know what's, <laughs> is this right? Is this wrong? And she was kind of like tickling, like kind of brushing up on my arm to wake me up. And then when I woke up, I'm like right next to her, and I was, I kind of froze, but then I was like, this, is, this doesn't feel wrong, you know? You froze probably because it felt good. Yeah, and I just didn't know how to embrace it. And then I think around that time I started going to raves. Anything goes there. And then it was more more accepted and even friends of mine would, you know, they opened up to me about their sexuality and then it became a conversation. And the the principles of the rave culture when I was in it were P L U R, peace, love, unity, respect. Mm. So we accepted everyone. It was very what we consider counterculture, but everyone from all walks of life was accepted and was celebrated. And we didn't know, it's not that we didn't know, but we kind of ignored the mainstream, what they thought of it. We still kind of, you know, went into like, we would go to concerts and stuff and still participate in the mainstream, but we knew we were powerful together, supporting each other. That's huge. Community is so yeah. important. Yeah. The Pleasure Chest has declared 2022 as the year of you. They are reminding us to reset and recharge our vibes. To get started or to deepen your relationship with your sexual self, shop their sexy self-care collection, which is full of toys to help you put yourself and your pleasure first. The collection features a double vibe from Lawand, 
an arrow stroker from Tenga, the incredible book, The Body is Not an Apology, by Sonia Renee Taylor, and more. Visit thepleasurechest.com to learn more or to start shopping. Again, that's the sexy self-care collection at thepleasurechest.com. While you're online, remember to check out Zencaster for all of your podcasting or remote conversation needs. They even provide transcripts. Head to zencaster.com pricing and enter the code GIRLBONERRADIO to save 30% on your first three months or a full year of their professional option. The one time that demisexuality, I think, has come up in all of my episodes was in an episode on asexuality. Uh-huh. I interviewed this wonderful woman, Lauren Jankowski. She started Asexual Artists to highlight and elevate artists who identify as asexual because she saw such a vast gap as far as representation. And she she's a writer, and she read all these books, and she never saw herself depicted, her, her, her identity depicted. Yes. And I really appreciated how she defined asexuality. The most general definition of asexuality is a lack of sexual attraction or desire. It's actually kind of a spectrum, though, of orientation. So you'll have, like, heteroromantic asexuals, homoromantic asexuals, panromantic asexuals. And then you'll have gray A's who will occasionally experience sexual attraction, only in certain circumstances. You'll have demisexuals who will only experience sexual attraction after forming a very strong emotional bond with a person. And then you have people like me. I'm an aromantic asexual. I don't experience any kind of desire for an intimate relationship or a romantic relationship. And I find a lot of satisfaction in platonic relationships like friendships and so on. I'm curious if that's how you would define demisexuality. She mentioned... It's after you have a deep emotional connection. Yeah, and that was something that after years of like fully realizing what defined me, and I'm still exploring whether it includes pansexuality, but whether it's a man or a woman, it's usually a connection that happens first, and then an intimacy of closeness and like she was saying, platonic friendships, that there's that connection, and then it could happen that I'm sexually attracted to them or romantically and sexually attracted to them. But it's usually linked to a real deep friendship first. Mm. Yeah. I really appreciate that. It's interesting because I think that for people who've never heard of this term, when they hear that, they go, well, I like to get to know a person first, which is different from an identity, right? Yes. So speak to what that difference is. If someone's like, well, I think that's me because, how do you know the difference? Um, Well, if we want to get a little graphic. (laughs) You can. This is Girl Boner. Graphic it out. Um, there's been times when I've tried to engage in sexual activity with someone that I was kind of into, kind of, you know, feeling something for, but really didn't know them that well. And things just wouldn't work. So it's like my body saying, uh-uh, it's, it's not like the, the right physical time. arousal doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And things just get awkward. And it's like, this isn't flowing. And it's really because we haven't spent enough time together. And I'm not even still sure that I like you at that point, like at that level. To really go there and to, like, give my all. Because it's energy, too, that I'm giving someone. The reason I really want to put a platform to it is because it's such a stereotype that Latinas are sex-driven and sex-crazy. 
I've had representation. I've had different people who were like, I never took you as the type to not want to be like nude on camera all the time. And I was like, what? Wow. Wow. What? How do you see me? Like, That's so one dimensional (laughs) and stereotyping, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad that you're speaking to that specifically because that is it's like the sassy, sexual seductress. Yeah. And you're like, no, I would you like to get to know each other? (laughs) With clothes on, you know. I was reading about different myths from the demisexual society. They said that one thing that comes up a lot is there's this presumption that, like, if you're demisexual, then you would never, ever, ever have casual sex. I mean, you can't no, you kind can. of put people all yeah. into one single box. Exactly. No, and I've, and I've had, I think I've had, like, maybe one one night stand. And, but it turned into, like, a few weeks, you know. So maybe you did sense an emotional. It was yeah, and it was intense. It was immediate. It was it was because the emotional thing was there right away. Exactly, that's the difference. So that I yeah, think. when when two spirits are really like linked together and flow, then that's different, and that's rare. Super, super, super rare. At that point in the interview, I shared another clip from my interview with Lauren Jankowski about a common myth related to asexuality: that there is this hierarchy of love. And only certain types of love matter. And when I was growing up, I was in an environment where it was weird to, to tell your friends that you love them. And that struck me as kind of odd because I was like, well, I feel just as strongly about this person as I do about a family member. It's love. Lauren told me that there's this idea that love needs to be ranked in order of importance, often with kids or a romantic partner at the top. But as she exemplifies so well, you can have a life full of love without either of those. I thought that was a really important point, that there isn't this hierarchy Mm -hmm. of love. And that when we assume that, then we erase people. That's right. Yeah. I've I've had friends who were so dead set on, on achieving that because that was always the goal. And then once they would, they would disappear. They would forget about their friend family, even their family family. They, you know, that would fall down the priority list. I love saying I love you to my friends, to my dog, <laughs> and to my family members. Yeah, but yeah. it's important. It's, it's all around us. It shouldn't just be focused on one specific aspect. Yeah, yeah. This made me think of another really common myth about bisexuality, which is there's this other kind of presumption, almost the opposite, that you are then attracted to everybody. Yes. Oh, my gosh. We're greedy. We're, we're overly sexual. We, we're down for orgies and threesomes. We're always the unicorn. Oh, my goodness. Which is a really interesting <laughs> pairing with demisexuality. Yes. Right? Yeah. Just to me, that's really fascinating because I read that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but that a lot of people who are demisexual associate more and understand and relate more to people who are asexual than someone who is heterosexual, yet people think demisexual people are basically like straight, but just emotional. And I was like, ouch. (laughs) I mean, that sounds really severe to me. Is that something that you have perceived? Yes, yes. Um, I can't tell you how many stereotypes I've run across and propositions I've had made to me. And I tell people to lose my number when that happens. <laughs> Smart. Um, but 
it seems like a lot of people that don't know can't separate the two or, or can't combine the two. They can't see them living in the same space. For me, it doesn't matter what presents on the outside. It's really what's on the inside, the heart and the mind. If those are connecting with me, then there's possibility for more to happen romantically or sexually or both, hopefully, you know? And it's still rare that I'll even act upon it because it might be like, you know what, I just really admire this person and I'm feeling other things, but it doesn't mean I actually have to do anything about it because that could get complicated too. Just because there's still an energy transfer that happens and then I know that energy, like we were saying, might be taken away from my actual friends, my actual family, the things I have going on in my own life. So it's right. it's actually way more level-headed than to be perceived as emotional. That's interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. And also, you just highlighted another really important fact that I think could be misperceived, which is if you're demisexual and you have strong emotional feelings for someone, that doesn't therefore mean you're going to want to have sex with them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's an attraction and it doesn't mean I'm going to act on it, but then I have to think, I must really admire this person and there's more to explore as friendship as anything, yeah. but just maybe more energy to give to that person in some way. In your story that you shared, it was really lovely to read about how your family, you wanted to come out to them, you had mixed feelings, and at one point you thought you would just wait until you were with a man. Yeah. Tell us how that unfolded. So I actually auditioned for a pretty major role on the Star series called Vida. Okay. And it's pretty much the first uh, Latinx show that shows different lifestyles. It shows bisexual, it shows gay, it shows uh, trans people in the Latinx world. And that's just something we've never seen. Never, never, never. And again, remember, I said my family was very progressive. But not having seen ourselves represented, I was like, I still don't know how they're going to take it if one of their own is part of this world. So I auditioned for the show, and I, and I don't get nervous acting. It just doesn't happen. I feel like if I'm playing somebody else, it's kind of safe. But this was so close to home that I was like, if I book this, I, I got in my head, if I book this, I'm going to have to have that talk. It's going to be a forced talk with my mm -hmm. family because they're gonna, I'm going to want them to see this. It's an important... It's important work that's out there that we need as representation. But I thought, I'm not ready. And so it, it, it ruined my audition. Oh, no. And my manager, who's known me for 15 years, and she's known me when I've dated both men and women, and she's seen the whole you know, range of, of who I am. When she saw my first tape, she said, no, I know you. This is not you. Something's holding you back. Please do this again. And know that, you know, you're supported, you're loved. Like, she was very, she's my cheerleader. She knew. So I did it again, and it was better, but it's still, you could tell that there was something limiting me. So I knew, I was like, this is affecting my work now, and my, and my art, and my passion, and, and an important work that we need as a, as a society in our community. So I, I worked up the nerve, and I started exposing them to more media that was inclusive, just little hints, little drops here and there. And, and even like my father, I would take him to a lot of theater with people of color. I took him to Kinky Boots. <gasps> he loved it. <laughs> and afterwards he was like, was that a man? <laughs> and then you could just see his humor was changing a little bit. Some of the things he was sharing with me were, were from that world. And I was like, okay, it looks like 
it's almost time. Then my sister-in-law and I were talking about media representation, and it it came to the time she's and and she's a white woman. She's of Scottish descent. She's married to my brother. I love her dearly, and she was she wanted to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking about gross generalizations of different cultures, and so she was learning and she was asking questions, and I was giving her the time and. And at one point, it came to the conversation of what about sexual uh, representation, sexual orientation representation? You know, should straight people be able to play gay and vice versa? And I said, you know, it's silly that I'm 41 years old and I still haven't come up to my family because I've never seen myself represented. Were you sitting there feeling like, here it comes? Like, was it about to come out of you? I, I think literally? it was through, no, I think it was through text. But then she was like, oh, my God, I didn't know. And I was like, I haven't told anybody but you because we're having this conversation and you're open to hearing it, but I'm giving you an example of how ridiculous is it that our progressive family, I can't even come out to them. Mm. Me as a huge progressive living your truth person, you know, I I still like, isn't that ridiculous? But if I'd seen more of ourselves on screen and if my family had seen more of it, I would have been more comfortable too. And so then, um, you know, she said, whenever you're ready, I'm here for you if you want help, you know. So then the next time I was there for the holidays and I told my, my niece and it, I, somehow it came out, I can't remember how, but I got emotional. And then she said, she was like, you know, so many of my friends in school are out and, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see. And I was like, that's not how it was. There were people that were out, but it was still very, you know, risque and, and it, was, it was still not a normal thing, yeah. you know, for us. And she, she was very, she knew all like the key words to say. It was like, wow, someone so young has these words and this knowledge mm. that gives me hope. Yeah. So the next time the whole family was together, um, it came up and, I, and I, I let it all out. And my sister was so, my sister is probably the more religious one in our family, in our immediate family. But she even said, you're more important than God. That just gave me chills. Yeah. I was like, wow. Okay. She's like, you know, forget all the rest of the stuff. It's still you're my sister. It's Talk it, about love being powerful in every form. Yeah. I mean, that's above her faith even. She's saying, you are my sister. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Did it change your relationship? Did you feel a shift uh, with your family? I there? did. I did. Because I, I feel like for so many years I was, you know, living in New York. I was living in, because I grew up in outside of D.C. and Virginia and spent a lot of time in Baltimore as well. And I feel like I was just so far removed that they didn't have to see my lifestyle in New York or in L.A. They came and visited me once and they met my girlfriend at the time, but they thought she was a friend. And yeah. I was, and at the time I wanted to to introduce her as my girlfriend. And I chickened out thinking, Maybe this isn't isn't the one, you know, to introduce. And I don't want to have that pressure on either the family or her. And and I, I have to get to that point first. And that was like 10 years ago, 12 years, 13 years ago. But now I'm fully an open book and I, you know, discuss things with them. It's beautiful. It's different. Has that impacted your artistry as well? Because I imagine even though you compartmentalized, it seemed. Yeah. But... To have this secret, because it sounds like you've always been close to your family. Yeah. Did unleashing that influence your creativity? Big time. Big time. I think it's it's made it so then nothing is off limits. Spending more time with my father a few years ago, I, I started writing about him and, and our experiences. He's, he's a damn comedian, I tell you. <laughs> he's so funny. Yeah. And, and so now I, I think I've 
become more comfortable writing about what I know rather than trying to suppress it and, and just be vague in a song about it <laughs> or play a character about it. You know, it's, it's like, all right, let's write the story and, and be truthful. So at the end of your article, you shared this really lovely message to your younger self. Do you mm-hmm. mind if I read it? Oh, please do. You said, to my younger self, you can do it. Don't wait. Work on yourself and don't run away. Heal your traumas. You'll have so much more time to be 100% free and 100% you. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to embrace your individuality. Be proud. Be fierce. Be you. What do you think your younger self would think of you today or, or hearing that? Oh, man, my younger self would like high five me, hug me, (laughs) probably come on tour with me. (laughs) How cool would that be? There's another meaning for your two spirit. (laughs) Do you you feel an inner child sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was just saying this. Who were? uh, This is weird. Um, I feel like a, a lot of the healing that I've done with my dad and with my family, it's as if our inner child have been holding hands mm. and leading us both, you know, through that. It's been really beautiful. Yeah, I always think about my inner child and, and how can I make them more comfortable, which translates to how can I make, you know, my nephews and nieces and their lives better. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was awesome to see you. Thank you. It was good to see you too. Learn more about the brilliant Carolina Hoyos at carolinahoyos.com. Recently, she directed, produced, and performed in the Indie Queer Solo Film Festival, which features indigenous solo performers who identify as two-spirit, queer, transfemme, and pan, with stories on discovering queerness, reclaiming power, declaring pronouns, finding joy in exploring gender transition, and celebrating being two-spirit. Carolina's piece is called Coming Out. A watch party is tentatively scheduled for February 2nd at 7 p.m. Pacific time, and you can watch all of it through the end of February. I cannot wait to check it out, and I hope you will too. To do so, visit celebrationtheater.org and click on Productions, or find a direct link down in the show notes. If you are enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I would love to hear from you by way of a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the iTunes Store. You can also support the show and get fun extras by joining my community at patreon.com slash girlboner. And if you check out Zencaster for podcasting, I want to hear about it. Learn more or sign up at the discount link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening.